Think back to the last job interview that you had, if you're someone who's endured one of those. What were you nervous about going into it? Were you thinking of the awkward introductions, wondering how nice and how polite to be without being fake, maybe? (laughs) Or maybe the tough questions you were going to be asked? I recently read a compilation of horror job interview stories from careerbuilder.com. Can I share a few of them with you as a cautionary tale? A hiring manager reported that one job candidate called his wife during the interview to make dinner plans. Another job interviewee admitted to a hiring manager that he didn't want a job that would require him to, quote, work a lot. Another candidate told the hiring manager that he would do anything for a job, even if that meant committing a crime. A job candidate grabbed her prospective employer's candy dish and poured its entire contents into her pockets. A job candidate asked to postpone postpone the potential start date so that she could get some holiday gifts at her current job. And another, a former banker admitted during a job interview that he had to quit a previous position because he always wanted to steal. So again, don't try any of those, probably. Uh, But some of the trickiest questions of a job interview, maybe you would agree with me, are these, the devious twins. What are your greatest strengths and what are your greatest weaknesses, right? How do you honestly speak to your strengths without being conceited or coming off as self-promoting? And how do you speak honestly of your weaknesses without false humility or without ruining your chances at that job? You know, Paul didn't have a formal interview when he sat down to write this letter of 2 Corinthians, but I imagine he must have been thinking some of the same questions, wondering how to begin, how to say the right things, how to say the right things without being self-conceited or falsely humble. Take a moment to pray with me as we begin a look at this letter. God, we thank you for this letter, 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians. We pray that you would use it to instruct and encourage our church and our individual hearts. We pray that through it, you will introduce us to who you are on a deeper level or maybe for the first time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning a series in the book of 2 Corinthians, and in doing that, we're jumping into the middle of a story, into the middle of a a relationship that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has with this church in Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth. Uh, And this book is a letter Paul wrote to that church while he was off on a different place. As you might have deduced by the title, it's not the first letter he wrote Uh, And it's not even the second, it's probably the fourth or the fifth letter he wrote, although we call it the second one because of, it's it's one of two, the other one, 1 Corinthians, that are recognized as inspired scripture. Paul was one of the original church planters in this city of Corinth, Uh, but this this young church was really having a a tough go of it for the first couple years, a couple years of, of real intense conflict with Paul himself. And it's during this time that both First and Second Corinthians 
uh, were written to them. Specifically, 2 Corinthians was written towards the end of this whole saga uh, of trouble there. It started out with the Corinthian church uh, tolerating sin in their congregation. And so Paul wrote to them and confronted them. And then he wrote to them again and confronted them. And then he visited them. Uh, and that made it worse. And they rejected his authority as an apostle. And so he confronted them again. And some of them did repent, but some of them are still living in this active hostility towards Paul as an apostle. So this is a, a church that Paul loves, but it's one that's caused him a lot of heartache. It's a church that Paul planted by God's grace, but one that's questioned and, and rejected his authority to speak to them. This is a church full of people who have believed the gospel that Paul taught them but many of them are now distracted and, and confused by all the other messages they hear, all the other truth claims and false apostles that have come in. So here Paul is again. He, he's writing to them again, and he's planning a visit. These are both experiences that have caused him a lot of pain. They've been severe, brought him many tears. What does he say to them? Does he still love them? Does he still even know who they are? Does he defend himself? Does he promote himself? Do they remember the good news of Jesus Christ that they heard? Is it even worth trying to remind them? What does he say? Where does he begin? Look with me. The beginning of the book, 2 Corinthians, we'll look at the first chapter here, the first seven verses. This is how Paul greets this church in Corinth. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Uh, this is the salutation. This is the greeting from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. What did you think? What did you, what did you notice? If you've read many of, other, of Paul's other letters, you're probably familiar with verse 1 and 2. That's a pretty standard opening for, for Paul. He send, tends to start letters like that, like how we normally begin our letters or emails, if you still do that. You know, dear so-and-so, but Paul's is just a little bit longer there. Paul introduces himself as an apostle. And that's normally how he does. He says here, apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's especially important as he's writing to this church in Corinth. Uh, and, and when he's explaining this, he uses those phrases, another layer of, of meaning he's trying to begin with from the get-go. Apostle of Christ by the will of God. He spoke for Christ. And the church needed to listen. But not just the church in Corinth, or even just all the saints in the whole of Achaia, as he mentions, is part of the address. 
They're just part of the whole church of God. He says the whole the church of God, the universal church. That's not bound by ge- geography or time. That includes us here and now, thousands of miles away from Corinth and thousands of years later. We are part of the whole church of God and what Paul says is binding to us too. The next paragraph here, verse three through seven, this is also a common feature of Paul's writing. It was common in ancient letters after the normal salutation. Uh, They would express thankfulness for some deity. And Paul normally did that, but he normally took that opportunity also to introduce what he was gonna be talking about, what the whole letter was about. Uh, what we might call the theme of the letter or of this book. Did you catch that in the verse we read? What does Paul open with? When he's thanking his God, what is he, what's his, what are he talking about? What's the theme? He thanks the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. That last word there, affliction, that's all throughout these verses. Paul is writing about affliction, about suffering, pain, trials, Weakness. To a church that's been willing to compromise and sin, a church that's betrayed and rebelled against him, a gullible and confused church, Paul starts off with suffering and affliction. And he identifies himself, first of all, as one who is afflicted. And then he speaks to the, the reality that all Christians, and in fact, all humans, suffer. He's saying there is There is darkness on the path of human life, of Christian life. That is something that is is common to man. Now, perhaps you're wondering, how does this all connect? If Paul is heading into this mess in Corinth, why does he start here? And I think maybe the Corinthians were wondering that too. See, Paul understands that the willingness of the Corinthians to hear him on any issue, about their church, about their life, depended on whether or not they saw him as an apostle. That was the issue that came up, and it still lingered there, whether or not Paul was a true apostle, because some had been told, some people have come into Corinth and said, Paul was not a true apostle. Come in after Paul left and tried to take control of the church as as pseudo-apostles, and they challenged Paul's authority. They said he wasn't an apostle. He couldn't be. He'd been beaten up and, and messed up and attacked and chased around and persecuted and he's poor. He can't be an apostle. Maybe there's a little of the idea there that how can he tell us how to live if he can't get his own life together? I've observed some of the coaches of my kids' sports teams that I've not been entirely confident that they have anything to teach my child. Um, I think there's some of that with Paul, but it's more than that. They were not just saying, He doesn't have anything to teach us. They're saying there is no way he is a sanctioned messenger of God. There's no way that God's blessing is on him. The cultural understanding of religion of that day, they taught that the power of a deity was found in the wealth and the success and the prestige of its followers. Perhaps you can see that in our day even. Maybe in the broader culture, People exclusively pursue wealth and success and prestige and will worship and dedicate themselves to anything that will give them that. Whether it's a political party or a health regimen, a career, a cause, a generational identity. Maybe you're tempted to think those same thoughts. 
Or maybe you're aware of even more corrupt theology among those who claim to know Jesus, who say that to know Jesus is to have wealth and to have health and prosperity. And maybe you're tempted to believe that. Maybe you would never say that, but maybe you wonder that. Maybe you live like that. Maybe you think, if I really belong to Jesus, why are all these bad things happening to me? Am I not supposed to be blessed? The Corinthians were told that, and many of them believed it. And to them, Paul begins here by saying, I am afflicted. That would seem to be a self-defeating argument. They think he's not an apostle because he suffers, and he says, you're right, I suffer. This is just the beginning of Paul's strategy. He wants to help the Corinthians understand that in the economy of the gospel, in God's world, weakness is strength. Suffering is glory. And those who are in Christ, especially his chosen messengers, will be marked by weakness and suffering, not wealth and prestige. So this opening paragraph, verse three to seven here, it's just the beginning of Paul's case throughout the whole book. Um, but, but while we wait and kind of watch that develop over the next weeks as we get into it, let's still chew on what Paul does say right here about suffering while he's talking about it. He uses the word afflicted here. He uses that more than any other New Testament writer. And he uses it more in this book than anywhere else. And he uses it more in this paragraph than anywhere else in the New Testament. That's significant. Paul is, is trying to say a lot about suffering here. He's trying to build a theology of suffering. He's laying the foundation. It's tempting in a sermon, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that, to try and say everything that you can about a topic. <laughs> uh, try to say everything you could about suffering. But by God's grace, I'll follow Paul's pattern here. and I'll just say what he says right here. So when Paul uses the word affliction, who is it describing? Who is being afflicted? If you look with me in verse 4, Paul says that God comforts us in all our affliction. And in this paragraph, he's referring to himself, his ministry team. The us and the we is, is him and his crew that's traveling around, church planting, Timothy and others. And then the other you is the Corinthians. So he's saying we are afflicted. So in a sense, Paul is saying there, there's something unique and apostolic about his affliction. His role as an apostle has a unique pattern of affliction. But in the same breath, he also makes the point that affliction is common to man. It's a universal thing. There's something human about his suffering. The Corinthians suffer just as he does. Verse 4 also says it. Those who are in any affliction. Verse 6, speaking to the Corinthians, you will patiently endure the same sufferings. You share in our sufferings. To be human is to be afflicted. To be human is to suffer to some degree. I think we all know this. We, we know the world is broken. Things don't work the way that they're supposed to. And, and we suffer. Maybe you wouldn't give yourself the label of suffering, but you know bad things happen to you. Whether it's a paper cut or cancer. Whether it's a baby who won't sleep through the night or a sleepless night of anxiety about the future. Whether it's the, the loss of a job, 
with the loss of a loved one, someone who continues to sin against you or, or the guilt of your own sin. Being in a church that's looking for a senior pastor for more than a year, we all suffer. In a recent New York Times article, a philosophy professor, he looked at our broken world and he posed this question. He said, are we living in a computer simulation? He argues that if we were living in a computer simulation, it would not be perfect and we would expect to see errors and glitches in the system. Maybe you can see the transparent circular reasoning there for what it is or at least the question that's being begged. And that's probably not the question that you're asking when you see something is broken in this world, when something in your life is not the way that it's supposed to be. I think when we're afflicted, we tend to think normally three types of thoughts, ask three types of questions. We think, why is this happening to me? We think, how do I get through this? How do I cope? How can I make it? How do I get this to stop? When is this going to stop? And these are normal questions to ask. These are human questions to ask. So what does Paul do with these human questions? How does he speak to the reality that there is darkness on the path of human existence? That there is affliction in our lives? Paul didn't bring up suffering, and he's not going to spend the whole book talking about suffering so that the Corinthians would feel bad for him. He didn't do it to prove that he was the most victimized and the most oppressed person and therefore he has the right to speak. Maybe you've noticed that pattern in our culture where suffering and oppression and victimhood earn you the right to speak to an issue. And if you haven't suffered in that way, then you don't get to talk. Maybe you've noticed that. Paul's saying the opposite here. He's saying his suffering proves that he was already chosen to speak. He's chosen by God, by Christ, according to the will of God, as an apostle. And he was chosen to speak, and to speak of Christ. When it comes to suffering, he wants to speak in his apostolic authority of Christ and of God. He wants to show us that there is light in this darkness. And again, while Paul is setting the table for his long argument, we get to feast just from the side about the truth, about who God is that he's putting out here. Paul introduces the theme of suffering in the form of doxology, a praise to God. He's praising God for what his opponents decried him for. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So Paul praises God for a few things here. First, praises him that he is the Father of mercies. This is a description that's common in the Old Testament. King David wrote in Psalm 86, he said, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Even though we all experience affliction, it's certainly not everything that could be going wrong in our life, not everything that could be going wrong in the world. This is similar to what we see elsewhere in the psalm. Psalm 18, he is a shield for those who take refuge in him 
Or Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. He protects us. He keeps us from evils that would otherwise come to us. This is expanded a little in the next paragraph that we'll get to next week. And God is described as a deliverer from evils. Uh, and I want to show you this picture uh, of God being merciful. I think this illustrates it well. God is protecting us from many afflictions that would come our way. In his sovereignty, he does allow some afflictions to strike us. As you see, there's the, the one arrow that is striking there. It's in his purpose, in his time. Verse six, Paul said, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation, it's for a purpose. But notice though how that arrow that strikes is, is white. It's not black like all the other ones. It is a part of God's good design for us. Part of God's good purpose. Because he is our father. It's the other thing that Paul praises him for here. He is the father of mercies. When it comes to mercy, he's the father. He's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the good that is in Christ, which Paul will get to later, it stems from the father. That good comes to us. And there's a further implication here. He is the father of Jesus Christ, but Paul also notes that his suffering is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You see that in verse 5. And, and there's a lot that's meant by that, and Paul will develop it more in this letter, but a few basic things that does mean. It does mean that God is the Father not just of Jesus Christ, but also those that belong to Jesus, those that share in his suffering. Who is that? Simply, it's Christians. If we belong to Jesus, we are in Christ, and he is in us, and we share in his sufferings. There's something Christian about Paul's affliction. That, obviously, means that he's not the father to those who are not Christians. Those who are still in their sin. Maybe some of you would understand that that might describe you. But it doesn't have to stay that way. The comfort and the mercy and the fatherhood that God offers is before you today. It doesn't have to stay that way. You can turn from your sin and turn to faith in Christ and know God the Father as you've never known him before. But for the Christian to share in Christ's sufferings, it doesn't mean that we just sign up for more futile suffering, like we're signing up for just you know, the part of the entry fee to be a part of the Christian life. No. One thing it does mean is that the suffering we will experience now has a purpose. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. It's not uh, just part of the experience of living in the broken world. It has a purpose. It's no longer a useless byproduct of the fall. In the hands of God the Father, suffering becomes redemptive. And Paul will speak to what those redemptive purposes are for the suffering Christian. Next week we'll be a part of that. But the other positive side of this is, if we are sharing in Christ's sufferings, it is because we've been adopted. We are sons of God along with Christ. We don't rise to the level of, of Godhood that Jesus has, but we get the blessing of calling God our Father. 
And God the Father is the God of all comfort. He is praised for the comfort he gives. He, he is the light on the path. In the same way that Paul speaks of affliction in the greatest concentration in this paragraph, he also uses this word comfort in the greatest concentration in this paragraph, in the whole of the New Testament. You see, there are, there are lots of things that could be said about suffering. There are lots of things that Paul does say about suffering in this book and elsewhere in the New Testament. But you can't say those all at once, and you can't say them all first. Paul does speak of affliction being light and momentary, but that's later. He does speak of his weakness being a a pathway to strength, God's grace in his suffering, but he speaks of that later. He doesn't open with that. He opens with the God of all comfort. When we ask, when we suffer, how do I get through this? Paul offers this right away. There is a God who is the God of all comfort. He's not trying to answer all the other existential questions of why this happened or when it will end. But right now, in the middle of it, God is the Father of comfort. When someone has a broken bone, what is the first thing that you're supposed to do? If you come upon the scene, what is the first thing that you are supposed to do? Are you supposed to Shove those bones back together. Maybe they're so broken that they are going to need plates to be screwed together. You just whip out your tool and go at it. Should you pry around deeper to make sure nothing else is going on? Some of you, maybe you're an EMT or a medical professional and you're thinking more analytically about my questions right now. But assume that we're all just the person that comes across the scene. No, I think we know First thing we do is we stabilize the person, right? You make sure that they're still. They don't hurt themselves worse. And you make the person comfortable. You, you ice the area. You try to control the pain. You wait with them for the EMT to arrive. The first response is not to fix what's broken. The first compassionate response is to give comfort. And that's what our God does. He first offers us comfort. In his sovereign wisdom, he knows the why this is happening. He knows when and how this is going to end, if it's going to end. But he first promises comfort. He promises to be with us in our suffering. We already read this morning from Psalm 23, but I want to bring these verses back up again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in the dark valley, God is there comforting. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even in the presence of enemies and afflictions, God provides and blesses. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Even in the dark days, all days, but even in the dark days, God's goodness and mercy follow us. They pursue us. They hunt us down. A rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago 
was the Latin phrase post tenebris lux, which meant after darkness, light. After the darkness of that medieval period, the light of the gospel. Amen to that. But for the suffering Christian, the call is not after darkness, light, but in the darkness, light. The call is not you're going to get through this somehow and then there's going to be comfort and light. No, God is here in the darkness with us. And Paul took great comfort in that, in the midst of his suffering. He sought out the light on his dark path. Perhaps you need to do that. Maybe you need to run to God the Father who is full of mercy and comfort. This comfort, though, is not just for Paul. This comfort is for others, too. Paul says in verse 6, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Uh, This is part of Paul's apostolic ministry, again, to pass on the comfort of God to the church. So there's, again, something apostolic about his affliction and his comfort, which is part of his whole theme of the book. But there's just something Christian about his suffering and comfort too. It's not exclusively Paul. This comfort is for those in any affliction. Verse 4, this comfort is shared by those who are in Christ. Verse 5, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If you are in Christ, you can have the comfort of Christ. And this is part of the answer to the question, why is this happening to me? Part of God's design for the Christian is that when we suffer and are comforted, we then become instruments of God's comfort in the lives of others. We don't just know that there is light in the darkness, we invite others into that light. When Paul considers the suffering of others, he offers comfort, and he speaks of this hopefully in verse seven. Our hope for you is unshaken, because we know that in, as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul knew what it was like to be on the dark path that the Corinthians were on. Paul knew what it was like to be on some of the same paths that some of you are on. He's happy to meet someone on the same path and, and offer them comfort, but what comfort does he offer them? He's not offering them the comfort that he shared the same experience with them. A shared experience isn't, of itself, a source of much comfort. It can shed a little light, you know, maybe that someone has been here before and they weren't destroyed by this. But on the extreme bad end of the spectrum, Job's wife shared the same experience as Job. She was not a source of comfort to him. She was the opposite of that. She brought Job down, even though she shared the same experience. Also, sometimes our shared experience really isn't the same. You know, we tend to look at things that happen and look at others' lives and the things that are happening to them through the lens of our own experience. Uh, but that's not an all-seeing eye, unfortunately. A couple years ago, Christy and I were at a, an exhibit down in Kansas City of King Tut's tomb. It was a really interesting exhibit there. 
Uh, it was during the day, during the week, so it was really not very busy. And at the initial, you know, opening video they show you, there's just us and one other couple, and the other couple had a, had a young toddler, maybe two-year-old daughter, and she was full of life. She was happy to be skipping her nap, and she was, you know, running around, making noise. And the other couple had, sent, you know, occasionally gave us these embarrassed looks, we're sorry. Um, but then they noticed that, that Christy was pregnant. Uh, Christy was pregnant at that time with our third son, Carson, uh, and they said something to us to the effect of, you'll understand, you know, in a couple years. Of course, you know, our, we're going to have a baby, he's going to grow up, and he's going to be a toddler and be just as crazy as, as their daughter was, uh, which was true, but they just, they looked at us, and they assumed we were first-time parents. They, they, they looked at us through the eyes of their own experience. They had one child, and they were coping with that, uh, and they translated that into us. Um, we've already been through two toddlers who run around and make noise. You're right, but we, we know. We already know. Um, we, we need to be careful that we don't think only through the lens of our own experience. Paul doesn't offer his shared experience. What does he offer? He offers the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Not his experience, but the comfort that they, he got in his experience. Paul's not saying, I can comfort you because I've been there before. He's saying, I can comfort you by giving what was given to me. I can comfort you by helping you to see that God is there. Later in this letter, Paul will use the phrase, what we proclaim is not ourselves. This is not about us. Even while Paul's defending his apostleship, he's saying it's about Jesus. He says that weakness is about showing the glory of the gospel. And, and right here, his own suffering is not about saying, I can be here for you, but that the God of call comfort is here for you. What we proclaim is not ourselves. And Paul will later use the idea of an ambassador, one who is sent to represent the king. It's very close to the idea of an apostle. And so Paul here is being an ambassador of comfort. He's not saying, come to me, the comforter. He's saying, let me introduce you to the comforter. And those who've had shared experiences can be very helpful ambassadors. They can say, I've been on that dark path. But they can say more than that. They can say, I don't know where your path will end, but I know that the God of all comfort is with you and you can be comforted by him. There is light in this darkness. And they can introduce a fellow sufferer to the God of all comfort. And even if we don't have shared experiences, even if we haven't had that illness, or had that kind of devastating loss, or faced that type of severe trial or temptation, we can still be ambassadors of the God of all comfort if we know the God of all comfort. Paul said he was comforted in his affliction so that we may be able to help those who are in any affliction, not just the ones similar to his. We must be ambassadors of the God of all comfort to people. We must introduce them to the comfort that we have known, invite them into the light. We should not try to be the, the EMT or the emergency room surgeon. Don't try to be another sufferer's savior. Take them to the God of all comfort. That's what they need. 
Many of you remember years ago when I was in high school, uh, my dad uh, was almost crushed to death over there. And he spent several months, more than a year, uh, in recovery in the hospital. Uh, some of you probably didn't know at the same time, I was having uh, my own health issues. I was having several months of after effects of a traumatic brain injury. And um, there's some days I woke up and it just felt dark. And I remember this church, including many of you, were ambassadors of comfort to me and my family in that time. Not many of you had a similar experience. Well, you gave us comfort. You didn't try to fix the problem. You didn't try to be our comfort yourselves. I remember one evening after the evening service, many of you lined up to just encourage us, and I don't remember what any of you said. <laughs> uh, but I know that you, we knew that you loved us, and you were being the body of Christ to us. You were saying, God is here with you. So if you are in the darkness of affliction, let me encourage you, first of all, don't deny it. Don't pretend like you aren't suffering, even if it's not that bad compared to someone else. Look for the light. And let me encourage you again, if you've never seen or felt the comfort of God before, look for it. If you don't belong to Jesus, if you are still in your sin, don't stay there. Don't stay in the darkness. There's only more suffering and more darkness there, now and for all eternity. And if you're here and you don't know what that means, come and talk to me before you leave. If you do know Christ and you're still in a time of darkness, look for the light. Don't, don't just suffer. Be comforted. God is not far away. He is there with you. If you have seen and felt the light of God's comfort in your trials, in your affliction. Be ready to share that comfort. Look for those who are in the darkness of affliction. Have eyes for them and introduce them to the God of all comfort. Maybe for the first time, but maybe just in a new and in a deeper way. Pray with me. God, we praise you that among all the things that you are and all the things that you do, you choose to be a comfort to us. We pray that you would be that to us, that you would be with us on the dark paths that we walk for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.